Hello and welcome to this ENT Expert Opinion podcast. My name's Niall Jefferson. Today, my guest expert is Professor uh, Rodney Schlosser. Professor Schlosser is the Director of Rhinology and Sinus Surgery at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. He graduated from the U.S. Military Academy of West Point with a degree in aerospace engineering. And then following his active service, he attended the Mayo Medical School and then completed residency at the University of Virginia and then fellowship in rhinology and sinus surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. He's authored over 100 publications and has given over 200 presentations at rhinology conferences around the world. And it's my great pleasure to be here with you this morning. How are you? Great. Thank you, Niall. All right. So our topic today uh, for discussion is going to be uh, CSF leaks. Just to start off with, how do you classify CSF leaks? Well, I think our appreciation for how to classify leaks has really grown over the last couple of decades, uh, similar to what we do now for sinusitis. We don't just simply say someone has sinusitis. We, we discuss what type of sinusitis is it acute or chronic, etc. So for CSF leaks, I always like to understand where is the leak, where's the defect uh, that we think, and what's the etiology, because those are going to have an impact on both our, our surgical repair as well as any type of adjuvant therapies. What is the etiology of a spontaneous CSF leak? Well, we think that they're related to increased intracranial pressure. They're a variant of uh, pseudotumor cerebri or benign intracranial hypertension or idiopathic intracranial hypertension are all uh, kind of terms that have been used over the years for this condition of uh, increased CSF pressure that then in, in these patients causes a skull-based defect and leads to a spontaneous CSF leak. There has been some reports in the literature discussing uh, congenital defects in Sternberg's, Sternberg's canal, um, but most of uh, the research that we've done uh, would probably support uh, more of the increased intracranial pressure rather than some type of a congenital uh, etiology. So if we accept that there is one group of patients in broad terms who have a CSF leak as a result of trauma, surgery, what have you, and we then restrict our discussion to a spontaneous CSF leak, how do these patients present to you? So the spontaneous really is, is a reference to the temporal time course uh, of, the, of the leak presentation. Traumatic surgical leaks are very well defined. We know what the etiology is. We know uh, you have the trauma, then you have the leak. And the spontaneous leak patients... These are patients that just present to our office, and sometimes they say they've they've had unilateral rhinorrhea, sometimes for months or years, and oftentimes it's misdiagnosed as allergies, colds, maybe sinusitis, uh, before the actual diagnosis is finally reached. Sometimes, uh, in some cases, they present with intracranial complications, things like meningitis or pneumocephalus. Maybe they blow their nose um, because they have a drippy nose, so they blow their nose. Uh, and that can actually lead to intracranial complications. So sometimes they do present with headaches, uh, meningitis, or, or other complications. But most often it's it's simply unilateral clear watery rhinorrhea. With your history, I guess you've kind of mentioned some of the things of how they may present. But when you take your history, uh, what key things in the history are you looking for to be able to help clear up that part of the diagnosis? And as well as that, to try and help you stratify this patient? Well... We see patients all the time who complain of nasal drainage. So anytime a patient has unilateral symptoms, it should raise a red flag, especially if it's clear and watery. And then I ask patients in clinic to bend over and see if they can collect a little bit in a, in a specimen cup. 
if it's sinusitis or post-nasal drip, vasomotor rhinitis, allergic rhinitis, those types of things are usually unilateral, even if they're, or bilateral, I'm sorry. They're usually bilateral. But even if they're unilateral, most of the time you can't collect it in a cup. It doesn't drip out of your nose like a leaky faucet. So that's usually, at least in, in my uh, taking of the history, what really begins to make me suspicious that this patient may have a spontaneous CSF leak. The other thing is that just like pseudotumor or intracranial hypertension, these patients typically are obese middle-aged females. Um, we also have some recent research that suggests that there may be a predilection for African-American uh, patients to have a higher incidence of this um, than uh, other ethnic groups or other other races. So uh, those those are the things that, that kind of raise my level of suspicion in taking the history. Does your physical examination differ for these uh, patients as compared to your sinusitis patient? It, really, the exam doesn't differ. Um, I, I do take note if they are obese. I, I do perform nasal endoscopy and try to see uh, if I can see the rhinorrhea coming out, most of the time, quite honestly, you, you can. It just looks like clear clear mucus there. Uh, but sometimes you can actually see a small meningoencephalocele maybe coming out of the olfactory cleft um, uh, area. Or if the patient has had some prior surgery and has the skull base exposed, you can see that. But most often they have not had prior surgery, and, and most of the time the exam is, is really quite normal. So what then are your uh, routine investigations? The first thing I do is send the fluid for beta-2 transferrin. Some places around the world use beta-trace protein, uh, but in the, in the United States and at my institution, beta-2 transferrin is the, the test that's commonly used. Um, sometimes it, it can become too viscous and protonaceous and can be difficult to run uh, the test, but it's a non-invasive test, so I'll send the specimen over and over again, and if the patient can't collect it, I'll send them home with a specimen cup and tell them to collect it and uh, then bring it back into the office, and we'll send it at a later date. We usually do recommend that they put that specimen in the freezer to try to um, maintain the protein, the beta-2 transferrin protein, so that we get a more accurate reading. But we actually did a study and showed that even if it's at room temperature, you can still usually get an accurate reading if they do, in fact, have a CSF leak. Imaging? What's the role of imaging? CT scan, I think, is mandatory. It's really the for sinus surgery and skull-based surgery. It gives us our bony anatomy. I think an MRI uh, can frequently be useful if you think there's a large encephalocele. Uh, you're worried about potentially an intracranial vessel extending down into the meningocele sac. And it also gives you some information about an empty cella. Uh, the empty cella is something uh, that we have found occurs more often in these patients and is probably a radiographic indicator of the increased intracranial pressure that these patients have. So we've identified that there, a leak is present. What are the risks of a CSF leak? Is it a problem? And when do you decide to repair it? So the biggest risk is an intracranial complication, and the most common one would probably be meningitis. In the literature, we don't really know what the risk is of patients with spontaneous leaks. It hasn't really been studied. It's been studied in patients with traumatic leaks, to some extent, congenital uh, defects. And so we know that there is an increased risk, but we really can't, we have trouble giving patients an exact uh, percentage of what their risk is if they don't have it repaired. So for that reason, we typically recommend that these all be repaired surgically. And with our endoscopic techniques right now, the surgical risks are, are quite low. The risks of, of not treating it 
are much higher than us going in endoscopically and repairing the skull base defect. And then we actually have pretty good research uh, and, and follow up on our patients over years that show we do decrease the risk of intracranial complications in these patients uh, successfully after an endoscopic repair of the skull base. You mentioned endoscopic. Is there any other way to do this procedure? Well, traditionally, neurosurgeons did these from a, a, an intracranial or transcranial approach. Those patients are going to lose olfaction almost universally unless it's a very limited unilateral approach. Also, having an open craniotomy is several days in the hospital uh, with the risk of brain retraction and, and the morbidity associated with that. So really, the I think the standard of care nowadays is an endoscopic approach uh, transnasally, and it's it's really most often a unilateral sinus surgery, and then we're able to repair the defect very precisely. But the, the key really is localizing the defect. Unlike a neurosurgical approach where a large pericranial flap is laid over the, the entire anterocranial fossa, uh, endoscopically we have to go in and localize the, the defect so that we can repair it at exactly at that site. So sometimes that can be the challenge if it's a, a small defect and imaging has not pointed us in the right direction. Are there any specific preoperative considerations uh, for this kind of surgery? Well, because of the issue with localization that I, that I just mentioned, I typically use intrathecal fluorescein in these patients. And I think that in a patient, even if there is one skull-based defect that's identifiable on, on imaging, oftentimes these patients have multiple defects. And sometimes the second defect can be so small that you can't pick it up on imaging. It can be just a small crack or it's coming through an, uh, along an olfactory filament uh, and it may not be identifiable. And so for that reason, I use intrathecal fluorescein on, on all of these pretty much. And we just have the neurosurgeons put in a lumbar drain. They use intrathecal fluorescein. And then we do the repair. If we think we have a nice solid repair and we don't want to use CSF diversion postoperatively, we simply pull the lumbar drain at the end of the case and and we send the patient home uh, the next day. If we do have concerns about the stability of the repair, maybe it's a very large defect, maybe the pressures were very high, then we may use the lumbar drain for two to three days uh, in the immediate postoperative period to try to uh, give us what we think is probably a better chance of success. So you mentioned intrathecal fluorescein. Are there any other adjuncts uh, at the time of surgery that help you to localize where it's coming from? We will have anesthesia team do a valsalva maneuver to try to increase intracranial pressure. On rare occasions, we have injected saline through a lumbar drain to increase intracranial pressure, but that's something that's pretty rare and, and pretty uncommon. Typically, if the leak is active enough to get a beta-2 transferrin uh, and you use intrathecal fluorescein, you can usually find the site of the defect or the defects. You've mentioned that it kind of depends on how concerned you are in relation to the repair, but... Your post-op instructions for these people, so if the drain comes out the next day, are they on bed rest or are they active, blow your nose, things like that? Uh, no. So we, we say no nose blowing and no heavy lifting for six weeks after surgery. I typically use uh, some absorbable packing up along like something like a gel foam. And, and the graft materials that have been reported in the literature really are surgeon-dependent. And it's what they prefer. And it depends on the size of the defect. Since these are associated with increased intracranial pressure, uh, if I can get a rigid underlay graft, such as a bone graft, then I will use that. If the defect's very small, I don't make the defect larger in order to get a bone graft in. Uh, but I typically try to do at least two, if not three layers of repair 
Um, if it's in the ethmoid roof or their olfactory cleft, I may use a pedicled septal flap nowadays. In the past, we used free grafts and had pretty high success rates with those as well. Um, and then postoperatively, if we've documented increased intracranial pressures on the patient, and that's also something that can be done at the time of, of placement of a, of a lumbar drain, um, then I will place these patients on Diamox or acetazolamide postoperatively, just like a, a pseudotumor patient, so that we can decrease their CSF pressures uh, in the long run, because those pressures are going to go up after we've successfully repaired the skull base defect, because they've kind of had their own internal shunt for a little while, uh, diverting that pressure. And they stay on that? They stay on that indefinitely. Okay. Um, and if they can't tolerate that, some patients, have, we have used other, other medications like Topamax, and on rare occasions, we do have a few patients we have placed shunts, um, maybe patients with bilateral defects. Sometimes you also have to be aware that these patients can have temporal bone defects. So even though they have CSF rhinorrhea, you have to be aware that that could be coming down the eustachian tube. And so recently we had a patient with bilateral temporal bone defects, bilateral nasal cavity defects, who couldn't tolerate the diuretic, and so she did get a shot uh, in order to try to decrease her risk of this coming back again. It's a big problem. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, look, thanks very much. I think it's been an interesting discussion on the topic. I'd like to finish up with the final word. The final word is an opportunity for you to maybe touch on something that we've discussed that's a, a, a key point in the consideration of this, or it may be something that we haven't discussed but you think is important within this discussion. So I'll hand it over to you. I, I just think uh, it's important for laryngologists to understand that, that spontaneous CSF leaks are very different than a traumatic leak. So if you have a leak that, let's say, occurs during sinus surgery or pituitary surgery or from a car accident, let's say, those leaks are typically easy, relatively easy to repair because you know where the, the defect is if it's a surgical defect. Um, many times they can be small cracks and there's no elevated intracranial pressures. In the patients with spontaneous leaks, the skull base is very attenuated, very thin, and you have to handle it very delicately. Otherwise, you can make the defect actually larger. Um, and then historically, the success rate in the past, I think we're, we're growing in our, our understanding of how to handle these patients, but historically, the, the success rate has been lower than the traumatic leaks um, because I don't think we appreciated the increased intracranial pressures. And so we weren't doing things like considering a, a rigid underlay graft with bone or cartilage. We weren't placing patients on a diuretic afterwards. So sometimes they would fail maybe a year or two down the road, or maybe they have a leak at a different site. So the surgical site that you fix one day is fine, but now they leak on the other side yeah. because if you haven't addressed the underlying intracranial pressures. Thanks very much. Absolutely. You can find other podcasts at iTunes, ENT Expert Opinion, or look at us on the website, entexpertopinion.com. Thanks very much.